keep going here. Uh, next 45 minutes or so, we're going to try to get through, uh, maybe even finish up 1 Corinthians, I'm not sure. But uh, there's some very interesting verses in here that uh, some people get hung up on. And so if we make it that far uh, this afternoon, which I'd like to, um, I hope and pray that when we get to them, they, they make a little bit more sense to you. And uh, so I enjoy this kind of thing. I like teaching through the Bible. I never really used to care much for it when I was younger as a preacher. I always wanted to preach all the time. But uh, man, the more I study my Bible and uh, the more God gives me light bulbs, if you know what I mean by that, like, oh, yeah, oh, that makes sense. I, I enjoy that. I really do. I enjoy uh, seeing the beauty of this book and the intricate power of it. God is so good, man. And the English in this Bible is amazing. Uh, it's just really neat to watch. And so uh, it, things, it makes a lot of sense when you see them in context, and then when you compare Scripture to Scripture, um, as time goes on, you really learn your Bible, and some of these verses that are like, huh? Um, you'll, you'll, oh, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing you're going to notice is this, and I want you to mark this down. All the cults and false religions and false doctrines will come out of some of these verses that I'm going to show you, like baptism for the dead. And and you're going to notice that's the first thing they're going to want to run to, and they're going to point that out, and they're going to get you all hung up on that, while they ignore tens of thousands of other verses in the Bible, and and dozens of other verses on the same subject that are 100% clear. They get hung up on the one verse, and they build a fortress on that verse. And if you're not careful, then when you're talking to them, you get caught in that trap of fighting their fight, arguing their verse. Don't ever get caught in that trap. Uh, you know this, the guy that controls the distance controls the fight, right? So don't let somebody else control the distance. You control it. And what they'll do is they'll latch on to a verse like that, and they'll just hang on to that thing, verse 29. They'll hang on to it, and that's where they'll pull you into the fight. Rather than hanging on to that, you say, well, here's what our pastors taught us. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that can be a little confusing, but you interpret the confusing passages based on the very clear passages. Let me show you some of the clear passages. Now let's go back and look at the confusing passage and see if that makes more sense. And, and what will happen is you'll smoke them out. You'll find out who really wants the truth and who just really wants to believe what they already believe. And then you can walk away from them in that case. You can say, you know, hey, pass the salt. Thank you. Have a great day, you know. All right, let's pick it up here. Let's pray first. Father, we love you, and I pray that you'd help me this afternoon. God, be with my mind, be with my mouth. I pray that you'd help us as we teach through this to make, uh, make good sense of this. And, and I pray that we'd understand uh, the reading, understand the words of God, and that you'd strengthen this church and bless these people, uh, help them to draw closer to you and believe their Bibles more and understand our doctrine more. And uh, leave here in just a few minutes, Lord, better off than we were when we came. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we last all, left off last week. We kind of nailed down the gospel there and kind of discussed that uh, at length. Notice in verse number 8, he says, And last of all, he was seen in me also as one born out of due time. And if you won't forget, I had mentioned how we have concrete proof of the gospel. And that to this day, um, uh, 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 eyewitnesses are still considered a valid account. And God gave a whole bunch of eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul was one of them. Notice he says, And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. 
So what you need to know is this. In order to truly be an apostle, they had to have laid eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? The resurrected Christ. They had to have seen the resurrected Christ. These people nowadays that claim to be an apostle do not have any biblical proof to say that they actually can hold that position in the church. There's no way to see that. Listen, with a pastor, a guy says, I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to preach. Okay, well, you don't know that, right? He just says God called him to do something. What's that mean to you? Right? So how do you, how do you validate that call? How do you, as a church member, not called to preach, looking for a church to raise your kids in, looking for a place to come to get fed the Word of God yourself, how do you figure out whether or not he's legit? Where's the Bible verse that says for a guy to be a pastor, he has to have seen the resurrected Christ? You, you prove it, you validate it by sitting down and saying, is God speaking to my heart? Is there a witness of the Holy Spirit in his preaching that is clear? God's giving me light bulbs. I'm learning my Bible. I'm, I'm getting under conviction I feel like I'm closer to Jesus Christ. I see a growth process in my life. This has been good for my family. This is spiritually what we need. You can evaluate that by watching the ministry, taking some time and judging it, right? I hope that's why you're a part of this church, because you're like, the Lord's here. That's our pastor. God's called him to do that. It's pretty clear. Now, if I got up and said, I'm called to preach, and I'm the pastor, and you have to believe it because me and God had an experience but I'm going directly against the Bible, what should you be your response to my call? If my claim of a call goes directly against the Bible, you can write my call off, right? Yes. You run. It's great, great advice. Leave. Great advice. So when somebody claims to be an apostle, okay, where's the proof? Well, first of all, we look at the Bible and we see where's this at in the Bible. In the Bible, an apostle had to have laid eyes on the resurrected Christ. So Paul was an apostle, right? But he was one born out of due season because he wasn't one of the apostles that walked with Jesus Christ through his ministry. He was born, born again, after the fact. After Christ died and rose again. But the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He saw the resurrected Christ. And as a result, that qualified him to be an apostle in his call. So that's, that's verse number eight. And that's another way for you to remember these people nowadays are nut jobs. They, they lost it. They're trying to claim an authority to control people to get money out of them that they really can't back up that authority. If you really are an apostle, then, then come on up here. I'm going to hand you a gallon of bleach and you go ahead and drink it. You get to these guys that play with snakes. You know how many of those guys down there in the mountains and whatnot do the whole snake thing and wind up getting bit? If you fail one time, you're not an apostle. You're a fraud. You don't really have the signs. You can heal people, can you? Well, well, get in my car. Let's drive down to Mott's Children's Hospital. Come on in there and, then, and, then, and look around. And then you tell me you got a gift of healing. Well, they don't have the faith to be healed. Okay, well, I'll show you in the book of Acts. These guys were healing people based on their own faith, not the faith of the individual. Go heal them, fool. See, that stuff makes me real mad. I'm sorry to start calling names already. I'm trying to be nice this afternoon. I know I, I preached pretty hard this morning, but that stuff angers me because I see people with their little babies, haven't you? I've seen little kids walking down those hallways bald with IVs in their arms on chemotherapy. I've seen kids in, in, in wheelchairs. I see moms and dads in strollers with kids that are completely crippled from day one. Yeah, you're right. Come on, man. 
I, you, you, how can I not get upset about that? Don't claim a, some kind of a false call because you're trying to get the money out of them. That's what it boils down to. It's evil. It's pure evil. This man was truly an apostle, and he was our apostle. We know that. We already saw the verses on that. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, this is very important because there's a doctrinal position called hyper-dispensationalist, all right? So you've heard me preach a lot against Calvinism, and I've explained some of that to you uh, on, a, on a kind of a low level. But there's a lot in the Bible that goes directly against that. And uh, here's a, there's another one that I want to warn you about, and it's called hyper-dispensationalism. The problem with it is it's, it's kind of sneaky. Because if you talk to a hyper, you say, I believe in rightly dividing the word of truth, and they'll say, oh, I do too. Oh, okay, good, we're the same thing. And by the way, a lot of them are King James only. I've, I've, I know some in the area that are King James only, and they, they are hypers. So what they do is they tell you that baptism no longer applies and the Lord's Supper no longer applies. And what, they, what, what their problem is, is they take rightly dividing to such an extent that they wind up throwing away so much of your Bible. It's like uh, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What they say is that doesn't apply to you at all. Uh, they'll say that First and Second Corinthians don't apply to you because there's the sign gifts in them, and the sign gifts you know don't apply. Only certain portions, some of the hypers say only certain portions of Paul's books even apply to us. They take it so far as to say we don't even really need most of the Bible, other than you know for kind of figure stuff out. But we don't really need that, and that doesn't really apply to us. It's almost like throwing away large portions of the Bible. And this isn't the extreme standpoint. I'm not going to say every hyper is exactly the same way. But what they do is they begin dicing up the Bible too much. And they start saying that some of Paul's books don't apply and that the church didn't even begin until after Paul's conversion, after Acts 9. So this is how they get, they, they try to explain Acts 2.38, right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. And we don't believe we're baptized for salvation. So their explanation of it is, well, the church hadn't started yet. The biblical explanation is that was a message to Israel as they had a second offering of the, the Savior they had just crucified. And that thing's going to work again in the tribulation period, but I digress. So understanding this about hypers is they start cutting your Bible up too much. You know, 1 John 1, 9 doesn't matter. Uh, you're under grace. So God, when you go to God and confess your sin, God says, what sin? There's no sin. Your sins are all gone. Well, that is absolutely true if, it talk, if we're talking about your eternity in hell, Correct. If you drop dead and stand before God and he's judging you based on whether or not you're going to heaven or hell, their sins are all gone. But in your relationship, you've got to understand this. There's a distinction between your standing. Here's how I remember it. My standing is in heaven seated next to the Father. Does that make sense? My standing is I'm blood bought, no sin at all. I'm as good as there. I can't lose my salvation. That's my standing. It's in Jesus Christ. And he's seated. My state is on this earth. My state is Michigan. That's how I remember it. It's on this earth. God sees no sin in your standing if you're born again. God will see sin in your state if you're living like hell while you're here. God will not fellowship with a man who has sin in his heart, but he will fellowship with a man who has sin in his nature. Does that make sense? We all mess up, every last one of us. When you mess up, fess up. Because if you don't ask God to forgive you and get that thing right, you lose your fellowship with God. 
You don't lose your salvation, you lose your fellowship. The hypers will say, you don't even have to confess because God can't see it. Why is that dangerous? Well, that's super dangerous because now Christians are walking around thinking they can do whatever they want and there's no judgment for it. That's bad stuff. That's the ultra-grace crowd, right? You'll hear them on the radio. There's some hypers on the radio. And they sound real good. They come across like, man, this guy's sharp and he's good and he really rightly divides. They're the Bereans. They search the scriptures daily and they got all these verses. But they start chopping the Bible up too much. A false balance is an abomination. If you don't rightly divide, you're going to mess your Bible up. If you start chopping your Bible up too much, you're going to mess God's people up. Listen, you shower? What's the point? You're just going to get stinky again. Right? You flush the toilet, don't you? What's the point? It's just going to get dirty again. It's the same reason I confess my sins. I'm just going to do it again. I shower anyways. I'm going to get dirty again. I'm going to start stinking. I flush the toilet. Right? Yeah, sorry, that's kind of graphic and crude and stuff, but you know, I'm being classy enough about it. It's real life. So go to, you'll remember, now you'll think of it every day when you flush the toilet. You're like, yep, I need to confess, you know. That's, that's it. I'm trying to help you. you know? Practical applications. Um, you need to be getting right. You need to be getting right every day. Why? Because you, you got sin in your nature. And God will fellowship with that, but he won't fellowship with it if it's in your heart. You let it build up and you aren't sorry for it. You ain't going to have it. So that hyper stuff is super dangerous. And one of the proofs that they're wrong in saying the church starts after Acts 9, after Paul gets saved, is right here in this verse. Look at verse 9. I'm the least of the apostles that I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the... Oh, you mean the church was here before Paul was saved. See that? Now, come on, man. How do you get out of that? You got to start correcting the Bible. This is the problem with not rightly dividing the word of truth. Underdividing or overdividing, either way, it messes you up. Go to Galatians chapter 1. That's why we're, we're what we would call moderate dispensationalists. We're not hypers, and we're not covenant theologians either. We're, we believe in, in moderate dispensationalism. Galatians chapter 1, look at verse 13. False balance is an abomination, right? Keep it in the center. Let the Bible interpret the Bible, and then you'll know you're rightly dividing properly. Galatians 1.13, For you've heard of my conversation in times past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. There's a verily, verily for you. Paul was persecuting the church before he was saved, so the church was already in existence. So the hypers are wrong. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, please. Let's keep going. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which is with me. I had a talk with my preacher on, on Monday morning about this. It was a real blessing, a real help. You think about it for a minute. It's but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's that simple. <laughs> I don't believe for one second that God called me to preach because I was so spiritual. I don't believe for one second that God's done the, the little bit that has gotten done was done because God's honoring my walk with Jesus Christ and all that stuff. That's between me and God. Do you know that God puts His grace on you and just allows you to have some things that you just have because God just is good? It's unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. 
if God uses you and your life cleans up and you get victory over your sin and you become what you never were and God continues to grow you and your life is effective and you raise good kids and God gives you a good marriage and a good family and good grandkids and a good church and understanding of the Bible and all the rest of that stuff, you know what it all is? It's God's grace. How can I possibly ever think that I've ever earned anything good from God? Look at me. If you knew me like I know me, you, there's, there's no way. It's insane to think, oh, Paul was this great man because he was so... Paul was a dog, man. You know what he said? He said, I'm the chief of sinners. That was not the same as some of these guys I've heard in testimony service. Oh, I'm just more wicked than everybody in the room, brother. I drink enough to float a battleship. And, I... and they're like half, you're like, is he like proud of himself? Or does he really feel bad? Or is he, I'm just the worst sinner in here, but God's been good to me. Ain't nobody as wicked as me. You hear that kind of, you're kind of like. <sighs> Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul the Apostle said, I'm the chief of sinners. God's vote was that little nut, that little psychopath, that brilliant little, and he was brilliant, that brilliant little demented psychopath. Paul means small. That, that little man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something great with him. The chiefest of sinners. That's the most wicked thing on the planet. I'm going to appear to him and he'll make the right decision when I do. And then God picks the smallest, weakest, most wicked man on the planet. And eternally in the scriptures it is said that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth a a long-suffering to a pattern of them who should hereafter believe in him to life everlasting. In me first. What? The most wicked man there is. That's him. That's your apostle. (laughs) That's the grace of God. That made Paul the man he was. It had nothing to do with Paul. It was just simply God picked him to do this job. And that's that. You can't fight for it. You can't want it. You can't compete with it. You can't look for it. You can't scratch at it and grab at it. It's like we've been talking about for a long time now as we go through Corinthians. You've got to figure out the gifts that God the Holy Spirit gave you. And accept what God gave you. And thank God for whatever he gave you, except what God didn't give you. Don't try to be something you're not. Just be you. Figure out what God has given you, and then do it. And thank God for whatever he did or didn't give you. Because look, I don't care who you're competing against. When it comes to spiritual things, you cannot compete. Do you understand that? You trying to give yourself a spiritual gift is almost like a boy trying to make himself a girl or a girl trying to make themselves a boy. Yeah, it's, it's spiritually like that. <laughs> That's a new one. I might use that down the road. You're spiritual transvestites, you know. <laughs> make a great message. <laughs> trying, to, trying to turn yourself into something God didn't make you. You understand what I'm saying? That, that is not going to work, folks. You can fake it, but it doesn't come out right. It don't look right. It's messed up. It has bad ramifications later. You have to figure out what God has given you and then do with what God's given you what God wants you to do with it. And don't ever think that anything you have is because you're something special. Don't think what they have is because they're something special. It is God that's doing the work. And he's what we're all after, right? So he's our goal. We're on the same page. Just get in line and do your part.
period. And Paul did that. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Now, let me ask you a question. Is the grace God's given you, which means the gifts, callings, talents, abilities that you have, given to you in vain? Now, don't answer that question because that question could be answered either way. It's it's a personal decision. I'll show you. Look at the verse. His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He said, what God gave me was not wasted and was not in vain, because when I realized what God wanted me to do, I poured my heart, my soul, my life into what God wanted me to be. There was no limits. There were no boundaries. I, I wrote on the check, I wrote, to God Almighty, I signed it, and I left it blank. Right? God, you put in there what you want. That's my life. That's my gifts. That's my calling. It is not mine to control. I'll let God do what God wants to do with it. That's the decision Paul made. A lot of Christians have absolutely wasted grace. Wasted gifts. God gives them a gift and gives them an ability, but they're little babies, little immature brats that don't like what God gave them. Don't want to do this. I want to be a fill-in-the-blank. I don't want to be a fill-in-the-blank. Well, you know what? You don't get to pick. Not being mean to you. I'm just kind of preachy-teachy, you know what I mean? Trying to put you all to sleep a little bit, get you all relaxed before you go home and have a nice relaxing evening. You don't get to pick. Doesn't, Doesn't matter what you want. God is the one who dispenses the gifts by His Spirit, has made you the way He makes you, made you, and uses you how He uses you, period, the end. You know what a bizarre thing it is that I'm a pastor? Some of you are shaking your head yes. You shouldn't be shaking your head yes right now. You should be like, no, really? We can't imagine seeing you do anything else. It's a bizarre thing that I'm a pastor, that God would take Mike Reagan the way I know Mike Reagan and say he'd make a great pastor. There is no way. I promise you, there is absolutely no way. It is not in me. It's not like he's you know, born to be a... Now, God had something... Before God created me, God knew what he wanted me to do. But then God wires me a certain way, or allows me to be wired in the flesh a certain way, and goes, that's hilarious. <laughs> because, honestly, people, people would tell me when I was first called to preach, you need to be an evangelist. Or you need to go maybe to a third world country as a missionary. Haiti would be good for you. Papua New Guinea, you know, Amazonian jungle somewhere, but don't be a pastor. Literally, I had, I had preachers tell me, you're not a pastor. Not Brother Lentz. He saw something else, but, not, but other preachers, oh, you're not a pastor, brother. You wouldn't make a good pastor. I'll never forget, I was at my first church. We were walking back to the house from the parsonage. Grace's dad had come and visited and he walked up beside me and put his arm around me. He's like, I'm really proud of you. You're a good pastor. And that like hit me. I don't, I don't know if he knew what he was saying or if I just was shocked he was saying it or what. But it like hit me. I, I still to this day haven't forgotten that. Just a nice compliment from an older guy that was just really encouraging. Like, wow. And it was one of those first moments like 
yeah, maybe I can be a pastor someday. I mean, it was really, I would, there was some pep in my step heading back to the house, heading back to the parsonage. But most people would never look at me and say, you could never be a pastor. I would never look at me and say I could be a pastor. It's just what God does, right? So now I have a choice to make. I can either go ahead and hit the lowest level, just kind of get through. Uh, pastoring is, is one of those jobs where if all you want to do is just make a living and just kind of be slothful, you could just slide under the radar and just make a living. A lot of guys get in the ministry for that. Or it's one of the hardest jobs, most demanding jobs, high pressure, um, stressful. Um, like we were talking downstairs, 90% Spurgeon said preaching is 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration, which is pretty generous on the inspiration percentage, I think. And you just embrace the grind and you just do the job. I don't want, I don't want God's grace in my life to be in vain. I don't want to get to heaven and say, have God say, man, I had a whole lot more I could have given you, but you just sure didn't hit it, did you? You didn't, you didn't want it, did you? You weren't willing to be what I made you, were you? Listen, I was reading it this morning in the book of Daniel. Um, he, he said over there, God gave him wisdom, skill, and understanding. God gave it to him. Wisdom, skill, and understanding. Isn't that interesting? I wrote a note there in my Bible because it was very similar to the conversation we had on Monday. I wrote a note in my Bible. It was the grace of God. It wasn't because Daniel was such a great kid and had made all these great decisions. It was because Daniel had made some decisions and he kept making those decisions. And when he was in a moment where he needed help from God, he prayed and asked God to give him wisdom. And God gave him wisdom, skill, and understanding in sciences and all the rest of that stuff practically applying to his job. See, we look at him as a prophet, but if you go back and look at where he, the position he was in, he had a secular job under a conquering king, Nebuchadnezzar, right? He was in captivity, and he had this secular job that he needed help from God in doing his secular job, and he sought God for it, and God gave him wisdom, skill, and understanding. God gave it to him. God just said, oh, yeah, I got plenty of that. Here, here you go. Oh, he was so, what's the key? <laughs> God gave it to him, period. Yeah. I mean, if any man, any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth all men liberally, and upbraideth not, the book of James. Aren't you glad you're not a hyper? That doesn't apply to you if you're a hyper. You can't take that one. I'm not a hyper. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I can look at Daniel and see how that thing lines up with Paul, and it makes a lot of sense in my life. It's God called you. God gifted him. And then he said, I labored more abundantly. The grace of God wasn't, it wasn't in vain on me. Why? Because I labored more abundantly than they all. I, I've, I've had some criticism in the past for, for talking about the skill development in preaching. Brother Lynch's book, everybody likes to refer to, you know, it's the greatest book there is, in my opinion, on preaching. But he talks about skill development. And you, ought to, you know what that takes? That takes effort. You gotta want it. You gotta put the work into it. Well, you can't turn preaching it's supposed to be spiritual. You can't turn it into what are you talking about? In everything on the planet that you do, there's technique associated with it. Everything. And you learn with time and experience and effort and going out of your way to try to learn. 
going out of your way to figure it out, going out of your way to try to get better and more efficient at what you do. And then when it comes to spiritual things, we're not going to put that kind of effort into it. You're going to tell me there's not technique associated with soul winning and with witnessing. We're supposed to be fishers of men. There's not technique associated with it. There's not like, look, this guy's been doing it a year. This guy's been doing it 30 years. Keep going after it after a year. Why? Because if you want to develop the technique, you've got to effort. You've got to labor more abundantly. You've got to go after it. You've got to try to do it and fail and keep trying and failing and evaluating what you did. I don't know if I said it right or said it wrong or I could have done it better. I mean, somebody's telling me on the way out the door this morning, and I did what you said and somebody was asking for money. I gave him money and I gave him a track and I feel like I really messed it up. And I was like, you did great. Why? You're going after it. You're learning. And then there's the post-encounter you know, evaluation and trying to figure out. That's how you develop the skill. It's very practical. It's very clumsy. It's very frustrating. But that's how you get better. That's what Paul did. He put his effort into it. He said, the grace that God gave me wasn't in vain. Why? Because I labored more abundantly than they all. I went after it. I didn't make excuses. I got it done. Man, I used to have to get up at 2.30 in the morning. Did I leave at 2.30 or get up at 2.30? Do you remember? I left at 2.30? I got up at 2.30. Okay. I got up at 2.30 in the morning because I had to read my Bible and pray before I could head off to work. It's just my thing. And so I'd be getting up at 2.30 in the morning to go to work while I was in Bible school, working all day, coming home, doing school, Trying to spend time with my brand new wife because she's all alone on a, on a mountain in North Carolina somewhere with like no friends, no family, just some rattlesnakes crawling across the backyard. And then the biker dude that just got out of prison that lived next door, she was scared half to death. And I'm leaving at 2.30 in the morning and he's this roughneck biker, you know, literally just got out of prison right there. He just drove right behind our cabin in that Harley waking us up in the middle of the night. You know, it's a scary, right? She's 20 years, just turned 20 years old. Guess what? hours on top of everything else I had going on, church and all the rest of that, and working for the landlord to try to make ends meet because I wasn't getting paid enough to make ends meet, so I'm working for the landlord too around the property. Hours of tapes. Now listen, people complain about online and all, and I don't even want to hear it. Okay? I don't even want to hear it. You try following Brother Lentz's growlings on a tape and catching that reference and back, backing it up and forward and for hours. I, I'd be laying on the floor in the living room on my belly, and I'd be, I'm IADD, you know, like I'm on the kitchen table. I'm moving everything into the living room. I'm laying on the floor in the living room. She's laying on the couch listening to my notes, and she's got all the schooling, too. She just didn't take notes, and she's three times smarter than me, so she's memorizing all the references when she hears them, you know. little exaggeration, but not much, honestly. Why? Well, because I'm called to preach. That, that literally is what has to happen. You have to go through that. You have to do that. If you're called to preach, you have to do that. My opinion, take it or leave it, what you will know is that you labor, you get out of it, what you put into it. Even though God dumps the grace on you, it can be dumped on you in vain. And you get nothing for it. Not Paul. He said, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. That's it. Do you see that? You see it? There ain't no way anybody has got the grace to go through all that. Got the, got the personal strength. 
When you have the work ethic, it is God that gives you the ability to do it. This is what he means. I think this is a great way to define my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You're going after it trying to serve the Lord. You're in the yoke with him, but somehow or another, he's giving you the grace to deal with what you have to deal with. And this applies to tribulations, but in context here, it's talking about his call and his effort for the Lord and what he put into it. And he's saying, listen, I outworked everybody. And then he said, but... I got to admit, it was somehow or another God that gave me the grace to outwork everybody. It, it was just there. Thank God for that. You need to pray for that kind of grace. Pray for that kind of grace to be faithful to come to church when you don't feel like it. To be faithful to read your Bible when you don't feel like it. To be faithful to witness when you don't feel like it. And when you do get good and you're hitting a good run and you've been more faithful and you're reading your Bible more and you're praying more and you're growing... You better recognize it ain't you doing it. That's the grace of God. What human being wants to sit down and read a Bible when you've got a television in front of you? Come on, man. You're going to read Numbers. You're going to read Chronicles. When you've got a TV right there, you've got a smartphone in your hand. You've got, you got within 20 minutes in an area like this, within 20 minutes, you've got any one of a number of different entertaining things you could go do. And you want to come to church. You, you, you can't wait to get to church. Man, I, I feel I, had some, I can't wait to get to church. You understand that? Amen. Amen. And I, I even got to hear myself. It's terrible. You know, like I can't listen to myself on the Internet. It's obnoxious. But I can't wait to get here. Do you know what that is? That's the grace of God. <laughs> that ain't Mike Reagan. That ain't the flesh. That's the grace of God that gets you like, man, I love going to church. And then he's rewarding you on top of that. Ain't that bizarre? Paul's got it, man. He's got it figured out. No wonder God blessed him like he did, used him like he did. Verse 11, therefore, whether it were I or they, so whoever they did the preaching and you listened to, me or the other apostles, so we preach and so you believed. Simple enough. Verse 12, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, and that is what they were preaching, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is the Sadducees, right? They're coming in, they're saying, well, nobody really rises from the dead. And now Paul begins to lay out his argument with the backing up and the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's going to nail down in these next few verses. He said, um, how say some among you that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Right? Common sense? Pretty simple, ain't it? Okay. Verse uh, 14, and if Christ be not risen then is our preaching vain and your faith is vain also. So if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't risen. One plus one equals two. And then if we're going to add another one to it, that's three. It's really simple stuff here. This isn't confusing at all. He says that if Christ is not risen, our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. If I didn't believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then I would resign. Like now. Like I'd be done. Because the second I get in the pulpit and preach one word, not believing Jesus Christ is really alive, I am a fraud. The first time I open my mouth with one word believing that, I'm a fraud. I'd rather be a drug dealer. I'll make a lot more money, get my adrenaline rush because I'm an adrenaline junkie, go out early, which who cares anymore anyways. You know, life is kind of like you got to get that point after a while, right? So I'm done. I think the point I'm making, kind of a dramatic statement, but the point I'm making is drug dealing is more honest than a preacher that gets in the pulpit claiming to represent God and doesn't believe he is serving a risen Savior. 
Verse 15, Yea, and we have found false witnesses. We are found false witnesses of God. That's right. Because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. So He's saying, if Christ isn't risen, we apostles that proved it with the signs, that have been preaching all this stuff, that God's been blessing and souls have been getting saved and churches are getting established all over the place and the convicting power of God's on it. We're frauds if Christ ain't risen from the dead. Uh, verse 15, for, uh, verse 16, uh, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. You ain't even saved if Christ ain't risen from the dead. See the importance, importance of the resurrection? That's why the devil's using the Easter bunny and all the rest of that stuff to distract everybody from what that thing should be about. This world used to recognize it as Resurrection Sunday, you know, when we look to the fact that we have a risen Savior. And I, I get all the background, all that stuff, and all the, I, I, I know all that. Estar, okay, but the point is, this whole world used to recognize that. Nowadays, this generation has absolutely no idea what it's even about. Um, verse 18. Then are they which are fallen asleep. That's always in reference to save people's flesh, not their soul. Their flesh in Christ are perished. So that's that save people who have fallen asleep in Christ. He says they're, they're just gone. They just no longer exist. Verse, uh, eight, verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ. Well, I mean, if there's no heaven, if, right? Defending my last comment, they're perished. You're going to say that means hell? He's saying if there's no resurrection, if there's no resurrection, there ain't no heaven either. Christ, the one that came from heaven, tells us how to get back to heaven, right? So I think he's not even talking. He just says they're just gone. That's what a lot of this world believes. These atheists believe you just cease to exist. That's a frightening thought. Isn't that a frightening thought? I mean, that to me, death would scare me half out of my mind if it's just gone. Just nothing. Like, why did I even exist? Why was I even have a personality? Why could I even think if I just die and then it's blackness, just, just gone? That's scary, ain't it? Only thing that would scare me more than that is eternity in the lake of fire. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to die and burn in hell for eternity because you didn't trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, man, that's a scary thing. Just think about that for a minute. That's a scary thought to burn eternally in the lake of fire. If you're not saved, you need to get saved, man. Alright, so he says in verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now, hang on for a second. Why would he say that? He's gone through a lot. We'll see in 2 Corinthians 12, in serving Jesus Christ. I've been preaching to you pretty direct about that. I, I've been honest with you. I've said if you sign up to serve Jesus Christ, to stand for Christ, here's what you can expect from the world, right? Basically, I said we need time to stand this morning. That was the message. It's time to stand. But here's what to expect. And then the conclusion of the message is stand anyways. With no promise of what's going to happen, but wait and see what God will do eventually, right? Now think about that. If we're, if we're going to deny the flesh... Serve Jesus Christ, do all that we do, the pressure, the stress, the frustration, struggle with keeping your mind clean, struggle with, uh, you know, whatever, not, not being you. <laughs> I said, 
that's good. I like that. You know, I just, I try not to be me sometimes. Does that make sense? Like you want to stick and choke somebody and you're cranky and you're yelling and you're, you know, all the stuff about you that's bad that causes trouble and strife in the home and the rest. Try not to be you, right? Isn't that what you're doing? You're trying to be more like him and less like you. Trying to follow a book that keeps telling you you're messed up. (laughs) I mean, think about all that. And if Christ isn't risen from the dead and you ain't going nowhere, of all men on the planet, you Christian people are the most miserable people on the planet. Because not only are you doing all this to yourself in this life, but there's no point to it in the afterlife. And he ain't going to do nothing for you in this life anyways because he ain't even really there. Now, we know Paul's being hypothetical. If Christ then be not right, we know he's alive. And as a result, then, the little bit of misery that we deal with, which can be all the normal stuff everybody in the world deals with, plus trying to live right and do right, and the external resistance we get, and then the internal struggle that that is, and then the spiritual element that comes. Are you following me? So we we can have it pretty rough as saved people, but... But, God's fair. Life can be very unfair at times. But God is always fair. If God sees life being unfair to you, and you stick with Him anyways, you know what God will do? He'll make it fair. Sooner or later, He'll make it We tell our kids all the time, life ain't fair. That ain't, you know, it's not fair. We start planting that in their heads when they're very little. We don't care. That's not an argument. That doesn't change anything. Right? Why? Because as they grow up, they begin figuring out life really is not fair sometimes. But you do have a fair God. So since we have a risen Savior, (laughs) it's really pretty awesome because not only do we see Him blessed in this life, and we do, folks, God has been so good to me. God's blessings on my life are beyond what I could ever imagine. And I don't think I'm not crying. I'm not trying to be a baby. But I don't also, you know, I don't think I've had the worst life ever. But I certainly have not had spent my life with a cream puff in my mouth. Okay? I've had my own fair share of frustrations. Right? God has been so much better to me than I could have ever imagined he would even be in this life. And I hasn't seen an ear hasn't heard. We can't even imagine what he's got waiting for us over there. But if he wasn't risen from the dead, you'd be miserable, miserable people, man. You'd just be in a wreck. You'd be trying to do all this stuff without the grace of God, without the presence of Jesus Christ, without the blessing of God, without ever seeing, look what God did. That's why we do this, without ever being able to tell your kids, I told you so, right? Like, in a good way? Like, I told you God would. I told you, honey, right? What? Because we got a risen Savior, that's why. And he's active, he's alive, he's strong. I'm glad for that. Look at verse 20, just a couple more minutes here, about five more minutes and we'll just cut it off. Verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. All right, so he's going get to get into this thing. He's, he's the first one that came up and, and never died again, right? There were some people resurrected in the Old Testament, but the ones that got resurrected in the Old Testament died again. He's the first one that came up and stayed up, so he's the first fruits. Verse 21, for since by man, Adam, came death, by man, Jesus Christ, came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now watch, I want to show you something. I talk about technique, right? I've mentioned technique more than once. 
When it comes to studying your Bible, you have to understand the tools, the technique to doing that, right? You run into a verse like 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is a very simple example. This is an easy one that most people that have been in their Bible can figure this out. But I want you to see the way God writes because tougher ones that you'll come across, you can use these same tools to figure out those verses. Look at the very next verse. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So verse 22 kind of comments back on verse 21, it kind of clarifies. Does that make sense? So when I read it, I said, for by man came death. I said, Adam, by man came also resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ, right? You say, well, he just added those in there. Well, no, I didn't because of verse 22. See how simple that is? And I know that's overly simplistic, but I really want you to get the point because that's a tool for you when it comes to running across tough verses. Is that, is that making sense? That'll apply in other passages. Look at verse number 23. But every man in his order. I mentioned to you before, God is a God of order. Right? God runs everything by order. Uh, That's why a good church where the Lord's in control has some decency and order to it. It doesn't have to be stiff and formalistic. Right? We can can have the, the, the freedom to follow the Holy Spirit's leading. But when you get where it's chaotic and out of order, and it, you know, the claim is, well, you know, we're, just, you know, we're just people. We're just trying to follow God. We're just going to see how the Spirit leads. And there's no structure. There's no leadership. There's no order. There's no format at all. You got something that's really, it's really bad. I, I'm a big one. I'm a big stickler on order, on structure. I really believe it's biblical. But I really believe without it, you can't build anything. You, you can't get anywhere. There has to be structure and God's a God of order. Every man in his order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God even to the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. All right, so you got everything in his order. Christ the firstfruits. That is, that is uh, we're going to stop here with these verses. That's Matthew 27. Okay, don't turn there, but you can jot that note down if you want. Matthew 27, verses 51 through 53, and Ephesians 4, 12. Uh, what you had there was uh, Christ came up. He took some people up with him, took some Old Testament saints up with him, right? What that was is the first fruits. So when you plant a harvest or plant uh, a product, you plant seed in the ground, you, you water it and all that stuff, and it comes up. When it first comes up at the beginning of the season, you know what you get? You just get a little bit of fruit that you can eat. You go through there in the first fruits. It'll be like most of the grapes are no good, but some of them are starting to get good, right? That's the first fruits. Uh, my mom and dad, living right over here off of Nine Mile growing up, I think I was 13 when they moved out there, and uh, they had planted some, I think my mom got them from her mom or something, but some grapes. Um, my gosh. I'll, I'll tell you, my Italian grandparents, <laughs> they always had the grapevines. They had the big old, like, those like gallon glass gallon jugs in the, with the wine in the basement. <laughs> like Stuff was like 340 proof, you know? <laughs> Anyways, so she got a grape from <laughs> a vine from her mom, and she had planted a grapevine out at the house. That was funny. You guys are all like, no, they really did. <laughs> And uh, so she had planted that thing out there. Well, over the years, that thing grew, and it, and it just got crazy. It was, it was probably almost as long as the front of this building here, and just would just be full of grapes. 
oh man, we every spring when those things would start, the little little grapes are coming. We were out there, and we'd be looking, just getting all excited. And then when the first fruits come, we go out there. I was so excited about it, I even started eating ones that were still kind of green. <laughs> but man, was that good. And then when they popped, when they all came in ripe, I figured out why moderation is key. <laughs> I'll spare you the gory details. But with my personality, that never stopped me. So <laughs> I never changed my behavior pattern, but I did suffer for it. All right? Let's just put it that way. Man, those things are so good. So you have the first fruits, right? After that, then, you have the main harvest when they're all just popping. And you're out there, and you're just, you're just pulling them in. You know what that is? That's the rapture. So you have Christ, the first fruits. When he arose, he took some with him. That was just a little bit. Then you have the main harvest. Afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. That's you and me. That's the second rapture. That's us getting called out. We're going up. That's the main harvest. Then cometh the end. And boy, every fall, that was it. Some of them would start dropping off. We go out there, kind of get, you know, when you go after the last little bit, some of them are rotten, some of them aren't. You're out there trying to get the, the gleanings is what it's called. So you go out in the field afterwards, the whole thing's been harvested, but there's still some gleanings out there. You can still find some that dropped on the ground. You can find some that the combine missed. You know, out there in Illinois, those combines that go through and mow down just hundreds of acres. But it was always funny because there would always be some that pop back up, right? Somehow or another, they got pushed over by the tire or something like that. There's always gleanings out there. There's always a little bit more to go get. That's at the end of the tribulation period. There's another rapture coming, all right? And that's, um, that's the trib saints, is the gleanings in verse 11. Then cometh the end. When she, he shall have delivered up the kingdom, even, to the, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule, and, uh, all rule and all authority and power. So you've got three different ones. You've got the first fruits. Then you've got the main harvest. That's the rapture. Then you've got the tribulation rapture. That's Revelation chapter 11. So as far as the main harvest is concerned, that's uh, Christ that is coming. You want to write down 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then 1 Corinthians 15. Those are a couple of good passages on the main harvest. And then for the they that are Christ afterwards, he shall have delivered up, verse 24. That'll be Revelation chapter 11. And there you're going to see the gleanings. That's the final, final rapture there at the end. All right? And there's even a three-part to that. But, but uh, we'll come back to that another time. So we'll stop here for tonight. Uh, this afternoon, it's already 2 o'clock. We'll go ahead and uh, we'll be dismissed. We'll pick it up here in verse number 24.